The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Um, and this Sunday, I want to talk to you briefly about the Lord's Table. Uh, some of you come from church traditions that takes the Lord's Table every week. Others of you come from church traditions where it was on the fifth Sunday of every um, month that had a fifth Sunday, or it was only done in a Wednesday night gathering. For this season of life in our church family, we have felt like coming to the Lord's table was something that we needed to do on a regular basis. And it really falls into two categories. Part of it is scriptural interpretation, like what was prescribed to the early church? Like, and then what was descriptive? Like what did they do based upon things that they were taught? And so we're wrestling in that balance. But when they came together throughout the week, they were constantly around meal tables. They were constantly sharing with one another because some had a lot and some had a little, and they were trying to make sure that everybody's needs were met. And so in the process of that, Paul and many of the other writers were just straight out like, look, when you get together and there's food involved, you make sure that everybody gets something to eat. But when you're doing it, you're doing it in remembrance of the Lord. And they were thinking back to that Lord's moment where Jesus got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. You know, There was such an attitude of servanthood towards one another. And so for us, we felt like, what does it look like for us to be obedient to what, the, what we're being taught? Like, what does it look like for us to come to the Lord's table? So for right now, we're bringing the Lord's table to the end of our teaching every week as a response, because for me, we always say to one another in our benediction, grace and peace, but this table is a symbol of grace and peace. This table is a physical reminder to you and I that the words we say matter, it's a reminder to us that our faith matters. It's not just religious ritual. This is, this is the reminder that Christ gave an ultimate sacrifice so that you and I could be an ultimate sacrifice for somebody else. So we talked about it last week. We come to the table as a guest, but we leave a host. We come to the table realizing that we needed Jesus to serve us, but then we leave like Christ ready to serve other people. And so we practice the Lord's table every week and we feel led to do so for this foreseeable future um, because we want as a way to say, no matter what the teaching is, it's Jesus. No matter what our response to the teaching is, it's Jesus. And when I leave this room, I want there to be no doubt that I'm supposed to represent Jesus and the Lord's table is our way of doing that. And with that, I just want to invite our scripture reader up. Is it Ethan? When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon's brother, was one of the two that had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, Christ, and we brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter. Jesus, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And God bless the reading of his word. Did you guys know that Samuel L. Jackson was 46 years old when he landed his leading role, his first leading role in a film? How many in here are younger than 46 years old? Would you just raise your hand proudly? No, 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 don't give me this worship raise your hand. Like proud raise your hand. All right, Anna, that's not proud. Come on, there you go. All right, most of you in this room are under the 46 years of age. And why am I leading out in this passage with that type of a statement is, can I just say to you that the names in this chapter were young The names in this chapter were people that are most likely younger than the majority of you. And some of you are like, wow, they got to be young. See, some of these could have been teenagers. Could have been 15, 16, 17, 18 years of age. We don't know for sure, but we know based upon some first century history and facts and things that we know about the culture and the life and the activities and the things that are hinted at throughout the gospel letters, that majority of these disciples were very young men. And now imagine the pressure that you feel, most of you being young, wanting the accomplishments of Samuel L. Jackson in your 20s, but in all reality, if you just let the Spirit do its work, it will work. If you just are patient and learn to understand what we're here today, like we sang about mending hearts, and as I look across the room, I've spent a lot of time with many of you. And I know that your hearts need mended. There are things that are going on in your life that you talk about with with people around you and things that you're just holding between you and the Lord. But I feel like if we can let the scriptures in the Gospel of John not just teach us, but like marinate in us, like we uh, we want our lives to be different because we've come in contact with it, We want there to be a different outcome in where we are. I want us to understand today that Jesus changes things. Jesus is not just something that we're coming here to get facts on. Like, what does the Gospel of John tell us about the factual size of Jesus? The issue is, is that many of you have been hurt by Christians. You've been hurt by Andrews and Simons and Nathaniels and Ellis's. And you, therefore, because of that you now have a different response to the truth of Jesus because the people that are supposed to represent Jesus have hurt you, so therefore Jesus has hurt you. And I want you guys to understand this, that that these young men that are mentioned here by name, they have similar stories to you and I. And I want us to be able to connect to them. But before we jump into this, let me get a couple things out of the way. Verse 51 Um, brings a whole different level of meaning to this, and we're going to get to that. We're going to spend a little bit of time on it in just a few moments. But Nathaniel's words about the fact that nothing good from Nazareth is comical, but there wasn't a one of you that laughed. And what does that tell me? You're not first century Jewish. 
you don't understand the relationship between Jewish impact and Gentile impact and the fact that why did he say the Messiah and then the Christ? Like when it's like saying Messiah, Messiah, like if I knew how to speak in Spanish, it was like as if every time I said something, I would say it in English and Spanish. Because John is writing to Jews and Gentiles and he's wanting them to understand that the early, that these young men that were coming to hear Jesus and his invitation to follow um, were interacting with him as the Messiah because Christ is the Greek word that's the same word that we translate the Messiah, but it's the Greek version of it. And so it's like Messiah, Messiah. We don't say that. It sounds awkward and you probably wouldn't attend this church long if I was redundant in that way. But John is making sure that his audience understands that this early group of believers had a perception. But there's also culture in this. There's idioms, colloquialism, so to speak. And this idea that nothing good comes from Nazareth is, is saying something about the prejudice in Nathaniel's heart because he's now speaking about a village that's not far from his village. And he's like, Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of that village, Right? And so when we read this, I want you guys to understand, there are some of us in this room that carry strong prejudices towards people. Jesus still says to you, follow me. There are some of you that, that have a really difficult time with people that are less educated than you. Let me just say this to you. Jesus says, follow me. There are those of us in this room that have economical disparities between one another where we either have a bias towards the rich or we have a bias towards the poor or we have a bias towards our own present circumstances. And what I want to say to us today is Jesus says, follow me to all of us. He knows exactly who we are. He knows exactly what's inside of us. And he knows exactly what he's saying to you and I. And so there's so many things that are cryptic in this and even Jesus' response to them, but we don't have time to emphasize all of that today. But I do want to come back to the fact that there is an understanding here that these young men are calling out to the Son of God, to the Messiah, and John's using these titles. But I promise you, they did not know Jesus the way you and I know him. Not yet. They don't have that understanding. So we can't take what we know about the death, burial, and resurrection and salvation story of Jesus laying his life down for us because when they said Messiah, they were looking for a warrior king that was going to set them free and Rome was going to be defeated and they were going to have a blessed life then and there on the spot, set free, no more pain, no more oppression, no more um, opposing armies, asking them to carry their stuff, nothing like that. They were thinking Jesus was going to come and set them free. So Nathaniel does not know Jesus the way you and I do at this point in time. All right, let me circle back to the beginning of this. I believe that John is writing an incredibly powerful opening chapter, and in this he's giving us a picture of everything he's going to cover throughout the rest of this letter, but there are a lot of characters in this story that are ordinary, and there are a few that are exceptional. Most likely there is not a person in this room that's going to have a similar calling to John the Baptist. You are not going to be asked to eat weird food. Some of you choose to do that on your own, all right? But you're not going to be asked to publicly wear things that would humiliate you. You're not going to be asked to go out and baptize people in the Baltimore Harbor with doctors standing around. 
you're not going to be asked to do anything that's going to draw unusual attention to yourself because there are certain people in this life that get very specific callings like John the Baptist. The rest of us are going to find our identity in Nathaniel's and Andrew's and Simon's and this unknown. Did you guys realize that there's a disciple that's following in this passage that is unknown? Like They, they named everybody else, but why wouldn't they name this other one that was following along with Andrew? Some theologians argue that it's actually John himself, the writer of this letter, so he wasn't trying to draw attention to himself too much. But we don't know because it's left unknown. But chances are you're here today or you're listening on the podcast later this week because you want to know what we talk about Jesus. You want to know what it is about this church and why we talk about Jesus. Or you might be coming because this is the only convenient location, right? Or you just like this setting. For some reason, you're here knowing that there's a religious service, knowing that it is a a service that does focus on Jesus, but if that's new and shocking to you, I would not be offended if you got up and left, all right? But at the same time, I would encourage you to stay. But you're obviously wanting to know something about Jesus. That's why you're here. That is the same thing that Andrew had in his spirit, the same thing that Simon had in his spirit, the same reason why he ran to get his brother. It's the same reason Nathaniel was, was looking for, for Christ. The, these characters can be identified with They have the same heart that you and I do. They are wanting to know God in the way that he's expressing himself in the world. So here's my question for us today. What are you looking for? Like, think about your motivation. Some of you might be coming here because you have faith in Jesus and you're trying to find other people that have faith in Jesus and therefore you're just wanting to build community. That's a great motivation. But the, the, the heart behind what we're doing here is we should be wanting to grow in our desire to know who Jesus Christ is. But did you catch it in this passage? Did you realize that these disciples, those that were following John the Baptist, they were looking for a messianic figure? They were looking for Jesus, and they were discovering while they were looking for him that he was already looking for them. I need to let that rest on you just for a moment. They were looking for something. When they found that something, they realized that that something was already looking for them. Can we translate that to our prayer life just for a minute? There's going to come a point in time this week, whether it's joys or sorrows, whether it's um, something that, that is just overwhelming you, you're going to turn to God and you're going to say, Jesus, if you're real, but you're not going to be interrupting him. You're going to be talking to somebody that's already waiting to be talked to. You're going to be talking to somebody that's anticipating that that moment he's, that you're going to be reaching out to him. Like, so you're not like saying, hey, Jesus, can I get on the agenda? You are the agenda. You're not reaching out to him and, and shockingly showing up at the door. It'd be like reaching for the doorknob and the door opening at the same time. Like, hey, I was expecting you. Whoa. That's Jesus. No moment of the day are you going to surprise him because he's anticipating it. He already knew you were sitting under the fig tree wondering when the Messiah was going to show up, and he shows up, right? He's already knowing these things. There's so much of this that's coming from this text, and there's four things that are happening here that I just want to call out. Andrew and Simon and this unnamed friend are looking for the Messiah. They think that they've found him. That makes them excited, so they even go get a brother to come and introduce him. They also find that Jesus is looking for for followers. We're finding that here. 
It's not just John the Baptist baptizing him, announcing Jesus. Jesus is now on the search to draw people closer to him. And when he finds them, did you guys catch this? He starts to rename them. He's even giving them new vocations based upon their names. And we get a glimpse, because you and I already know much of the story, that Simon, who becomes Peter, becomes named Peter because that's a word that means the rock. And we know that he's not the greatest rock, but he's being fashioned into a good rock that the early church ends up banking itself on in the book of Acts until oppression comes so much on him that somebody like James has to then step in and become the face of the Jerusalem church. And so we're beginning to see how all these characters are being brought together, but we're finding in this passage that when you meet Jesus, you're no longer the same. It's almost like as if he speaks new life over you. He's like, you're no longer bound by that. Like, my name Ellis is an English equivalent to the name Elijah, and I'm grateful that my mom gave me that name. Well, my dad actually did. My mom wanted me to be called my middle name, which is Eric. Um, Any Eric's? Um, But when I found out I was named after my grandfather, I insisted on being called Ellis in kindergarten, which changed. I still have family members that I don't see, but once every three to five years that still call me Eric, I'm like, I changed my name in kindergarten. I'm now 46 years old. Would you please call me Ellis, right? But when you meet Christ, when you actually realize that when you meet him, he's already been waiting for you, there comes new life. There comes a new identity, and many times it almost feels like a new name. John's readers in this Gentile world would have sensed Jesus calling them and then renaming them. The Gentiles, not the Jewish people. The Jewish people had a practice of already being renamed, and their names having a foundational meaning. Like when you met somebody, oh, you're a rock, I can trust you. You're going to be strong. I can lean into you. Like the name gave something off. Here, the Gentiles were used to environments when you changed your faith or your religion, new names would come, and they were excited about being a new identity. No, I am no longer that outcast from this village. I'm no longer this despised people. I am a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Total identity change. So are we finding that Jesus is coming to look for us Do you guys ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like that Jesus is already looking for you? I mean, many of us have been going to church for a long time, but when was the last time you just sat with a simple question like that? That you went to your prayer space. Some of you, you like to take a walk in a park. Some of you would like to go down to the harbor. Some of you have a little courtyard or someplace that you go at work. I even saw one of you post on Instagram that you love gazebos. You know, it's like there's places that speak to your soul. I have a roof deck on my house that I'm thankful for. When I go up there and I sit down, it's like, yes, Lord. But it's different on certain days because there's other days I feel like Jesus has already prepared a place for me that I'm not going up to something that I've prepared for him. I walk up and he's already waiting. What would that look like if that's the way we felt every time we prayed? Not just the prayers at the table when we eat, where it's like, okay, who's going to pray? All right, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, bless the one who eats the most. Thank you, Lord, right? (laughs) Um, But what happens if when in that moment it became sacred, and we realized that Jesus had pulled up, that Jesus hadn't pulled up a chair to our table, but he was actually at the table before we got there and said, Welcome. That's how our prayer life should start. 
is that I'm not inviting him to a table I have set for him. I am getting the chance to sit down at a table he's prepared for me. And I feel like Nathaniel and Andrew and Simon, who becomes Peter, are, are, are becoming these men that are showing us an example that Jesus is looking for us. I mentioned um, this verse 51. There's a reference to angels and all that descending up and down the ladder. Did you guys catch the biblical story? How many of you know what that's referring to? Would you call out the characters that might be popular in that Old Testament story? Jacob and Esau, right? So if, you, if, you're, if you're taking notes and you want to, you can read about Jacob and Esau's life in Genesis 25 through 28, those chapters. But this passage is referring to them, and there was an incredible competition between these, these twins because Esau was born first. But what does it say about their birth? When Esau came out, what, what happened? Jacob had a hold of his heel, right? He's like, oh, I'm trying to get out first because I want the birthright even from a baby. He was competing to be first. His name actually has this trickster mentality, like he's constantly looking for a way to get ahead of his brother. And ultimately, him and his mom conspire, and they do an awful thing of stealing a birthright. And then he ends up leaving with just the clothes on his back after he's been blessed with his father's full inheritance, and he's basically fleeing for his life. He finds himself in this place, and he he gets in this wrestling match with the Lord. This dream falls upon him, and there's this thing happening between angels descending up and down a ladder, and he wakes up from that, and it becomes a place named Bethel. And if you know anything about Israel's story, when they finally possessed that land, they actually went there to worship God because they felt like there was a special interaction between the heavenly host and them, and heaven and earth would come together in this place of worship called Bethel. All of that's packed into verse 51. Did you read it? <laughs> to the people, though, that were hearing John write this letter, all of those memories would have come rushing in. And so here at the end of Genesis, excuse me, here at the end of John chapter 1, there's a huge tie-in to the story of Jacob and Esau because the majority of the people in this area that would have received this letter would have understood Jacob and Esau and the powerful story it was in the, the Jewish tradition and their faith and as their family. And they would have known that that's the place where heaven and earth comes together. And Jesus is saying to these men, if you follow me, you're going to have a Jacob and Esau story. You're going to have a moment where you're going to see the angels of heaven descending upon me, and you're going to start seeing God do things. And he was taking all the powerful worship of Bethel, the presence of God in the world today, and he's saying to you, if you follow me, you're going to experience things that are going to blow your mind. I love the way that N.T. Wright described this. He actually says this, and he's He's rewriting Jesus' words, so I'm saying he's doing this and I'm not doing this, all right? But this is what he said, and I love this. He said, Jesus was basically saying to these men, don't think that all you will see in one or two remarkable acts of insight, such as you witnessed when I showed you that I knew about you before you even appeared. What you'll see from now, from now on is the reality towards which Jacob's ladder, even the temple itself, was pointing like a signpost. If you follow me, be watching what it looks like when heaven and earth are open to each other. You won't necessarily see the angels themselves, but you'll see things happen which show that they are all right there. I love the fact that in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says that the flesh came and lived amongst them, 
which is a word that's translated from a word that they also use in the Old Testament as tabernacling, which basically means pitching a tent. And all of these references in chapter 1 are basically saying to you and I that the creator of life is coming to dwell with us. And so these early disciples were asked to follow Jesus, and he was trying to give them a glimpse. He's like, you have a picture of me being the Messiah, a nice little figurine about this tall, but I'm about to show you the God of the universe. And so when you and I want to know what God looks like, where should we look? The answer is, say it louder, Jesus. Can somebody say it loud enough that you're actually on the podcast? Jesus, Jesus, right? And so we are in a situation where you and I, no matter what experiences we're bringing to this room today, when you and I find that Jesus is waiting for us, when you and I have that mental connection where it's like, this makes sense, Jesus has prepared a place for me, and now I get to sit with him at his invitation because of his preparation and his work. I believe that you and I can find our way into this passage of scripture, into this whole letter, and then when we get to the other end and Jesus says go, we're going to joyfully go because we're going to understand the full journey that these disciples went on. So here's how I want to end this for our time today. When you're with Jesus, it's as though you're in the house of God, the temple itself, with God's angels coming up and down, and God's own presence is there with you. If there's a transition that's happened in this introduction in John's letter to the audience that is just cracking it open and beginning to get into it, John is introing, when you are with Jesus, God's own presence is there with you. That is a truth that many of us believe, but it is a truth that we need to live. It needs to be something that is more than just our theological understanding. It needs to be in the spaces of your workplace. It needs to be in your mode of transportation, whether you're on a scooter or an Uber or you're walking or you're on your bike or your own car. Wherever you are going, there's an invitation for Jesus to say to you, I'm here, join me. I'm here, join me, I'm here, join me, I'm here, join me, follow me. This is what Jesus is saying to us. And that promise remains true for us today. One of the things that I think that John's going to accomplish in this letter is what he said in John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs and wonders in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But by believing you may have life. How many of you today, and this is rhetorical, this is not a time to show hands, but how many of you today need a moment where you start walking towards Jesus and you feel like he's behind the closed door, but as you get closer to the door, the door opens automatically and he's like, I've been expecting you. I know there's scriptures about asking, seeking, and knocking, and therefore many of us live in this posture that we've got to get Jesus' attention. And as we go through this Gospel of John, I want you guys to understand that there are moments that those illustrations in the Gospels are very vitally important for things that we need to be doing 
But Jesus' posture towards you and I is expecting you to come be with him. So anytime we go towards him, he's expecting it. And that not only is he expecting it, he knows everything that we need. I need that this morning. The verses in the songs that, that most connected to me today, the names of God that we proclaimed over him through song today, the one that speaks the most to me based upon my circumstances is light in the darkness. Some of you were connecting with other names or things that were connecting. I'm being transparent with you guys today. I know that right now when I pursue Jesus, he's going to give light to the darkness around me. He's going to let me see where my, my thinking is broken, where my thought life needs to be changed, my attitudes, the way I process information, the way I process the city that we live in, the politics of our nation, the pain around the world, that I know that if I come to him, he's going to be a light into all of that, and there's going to be no more darkness. And that's the Jesus that I've been running after this week. What kind of response do you need today? What is the Christ you want to approach? I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And as I shared before we got started, we are going to come to the Lord's table. We also have people that are going to be around the room that can pray specific prayers over you. Some of you just need somebody to pray with. There's nothing drastically wrong with what's going on in your life. You just want the comfort of praying with somebody. Some of you need prayers for healing. You need um, clarity on wisdom, things that you're seeking out. I just want to say to you guys today, there are people that are ready to respond in prayer. But the rest of us, we need to come to the table that's been prepared for us, realizing that Jesus is there and he is the greatest of all hosts. He provided for us in ways that we could never have provided for ourselves. He brought salvation to us when we were lost in our sin and rebellion and forgave us of that. And he says to us, grace and peace to you. And when we come away from this table, we need to be ready to extend that same grace and peace to others. Father, as we respond to this today, Lord, would you give us wisdom over things like church membership and covenanting? Would you give us wisdom over the, the decisions that we're making with our life? And Father, would you help us to see today that when we are searching for you, you are already and have already been searching for us and you are expecting us to approach you. You're expecting our questions. You're expecting the thoughts and the life that we have that we're, we're, we're trying to stream in your direction. There's nothing that we're saying to you that's surprising to you. Father, I bring so much comfort to me. I thank you for that. But Father, I don't want to stay where I am. I want to, I want to grow into the image of Jesus. And Father, I pray that same over my brothers and sisters today. Would we not be con with content with who we are but would we strive to become more like Christ today? And Father, for the person sitting in this room that has yet to place their trust in you, Father, would today be a day that they realize that you have welcomed them, that there is a table set, a place set at the table for them. Lord, would you help them walk in their belief, following you? Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Andrew and Philip and Simon and others that are going to be named, even John the Baptist, Lord, who none of us can relate to. But Lord, we thank you for the people that you've placed in our lives that we can see the work of Christ in. And Lord, we, would we continue to grow? And we ask this in Jesus. Amen.